0: I turned 40 the other
1: day, so. I'm really happy to be here again with Stephen Hearn, who um, has been uh, a software developer and is currently working as a stay-at-home dad, which is a very vital job as well, and uh, Stephen and I had a wonderful conversation earlier about software development and patterns and how this all relates to art and coding, and... uh, I never did get to hear Stephen's backstory. So we're going to start today with Stephen's backstory and I'll just let you get started.
0: Thanks. Um, thank you for inviting me back, uh, Karen. You never know when you do something like this, if someone actually wants you back or if they're just being nice. So <laughs> It's good to be back. Um, so as for my uh, story, when I was a, a, a child, I, um, I grew up in a very out there pentecostal church um like full on Toronto blessings speaking in tongues people prophesying on stage and and whatnot but like there there was the there was the radical um pentecostals and then there was the people that that we were with um so um we we were we we were in a very um a very it, it was it was verging on cult but it wasn't cult because a cult implies a whole bunch of other things but looking at it from the outside it would look very strange to somebody uh, viewing it um and I, I was in that church until I was about 10 years old and so i got to participate in a lot of those activities and see them firsthand and you know when you're a kid you never really think about these things but as you get older, you, you look back on them and you go, well, what was all that about? Um, and, and after that, like my parents ended up leaving that church for various reasons. It was no, no bad blood or anything, um, but there'd been a whole changeover of the people in that church and they just felt it was time to move on. And so through my teenage years, I was kind of more involved in, in a Baptist church, which it suited me and my personality a bit more than, than the, the out there Pentecostalism. Um, I guess I've always been a little bit more head than experience um, in, in my life, which explains why I ended up in software, because software requires quite a bit of um, thought and, and head knowledge and, and that kind of aspect of things. Anyway, it's to cut a long story short, well, I've ended before, up going...
1: before you cut the story short, I just have sure. to say a lot of people listening may not know what you mean when you say the Toronto blessing. I happen sure. to know because I read about it at the time but for the people mm-hmm. who have no idea could you just explain what the Toronto blessing was?
0: Yeah sure so uh, the Toronto blessing was uh, it's something that started in Toronto hence the name but it was basically people would move to the front of the church. And they would be blessed by the, the pastor or the preacher or whoever was up, up the front. Sometimes it was just lay people in the church. And that blessing would then cause them to fall backwards. And generally speaking, there would be a bit of a, a mystical experience associated with that. There would be this feeling of, uh, of joy and acceptance, and they would lie down and, and basically meditate or pray for that time before they got up and moved on. Um, and did other things uh, with their lives, but it it required, it, and there were people in the church who were assigned to stand behind these people and catch them as they fell. And um, it kind of it, it it was something that was really popular throughout the eighties and, and early nineties, and it kind of
1: well, lost didn't popularity. that start though? Didn't that start though from some sort of a revival kind of mm-hmm. event that mm-hmm. happened in Toronto? That, yeah, I believe. I recall that. they called the Laughing Revival because mm. the people who were first touched by this revival were so filled with joy that yeah. they couldn't stop smiling yes. and laughing and uh and and then of course as it as the revival matured and moved on through other churches i think it became more of like of what you're discussing there but
0: yeah well like yeah. i'm i'm remembering this and there was certainly a lot of times where laughter was Involved and a big part of what was going uh-huh. on, but it was not, um, it, it didn't, ha- it wasn't always laughter and it wasn't always being knocked over. Mm-hmm. There, there was, there was times where maybe people would sit in a circle and, and then laughter thing would happen. Um, there were times where people would fall over and not be laughing, but just be, um, sitting there and in the presence of God or, or whatever. Um,
1: So as a 10-year-old, you're just watching this and trying to understand what's happening.
0: Yeah, so, well, it was actually, it was mostly kind of in my early primary school days, part of it was being there and watching it, and part of it was actually participation in it. Um, it, There was less participation from me because I was a kid, um, and we didn't, they didn't tend to involve children as much as they involved adults, but certainly it was, it was very formational and uh, and it always it always left me wondering because I'm a bit more of a skeptical person um, in, in some ways it always left me wondering okay well how much of that was God and how much of that was people just following the crowd or doing as they saw others do
1: mm-hmm. and it wasn't
0: and it, it it was actually only recently that I kind of finally, reconciled what was going on there to an extent. Um, like, obviously, as a Christian, I believe that there was, like, God was involved. Um, but what what does that mean? Like, and and how far did that go? And it was actually, um, <laughs> it was actually John Kavakey and listening to the first half of the Meaning Crisis um, series that he did where he introduced the concept of a psychotechnology and that was like, that blew me away because that's exactly what was going on there. These were psychotechnologies which bound the community together and focused them on God. It, and, and that's why they were a mystical experience, but they were directed towards the good. And I still, um, I'm not in contact with anyone from that first church that I was involved with, but I have spoken to my sister who who knows a number of people from that era still, and they they haven't left. A, a lot of them haven't left. They they've distributed themselves around the country, around um, Brisbane. Some of them have left, but there are still there are still a lot of people who were there at that time who are still involved in a church somewhere. Um, and that to me says that 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 to me says that that was a very important part of their upbringing and that it wasn't something that was hurtful or damaging um, to their spiritual walk. Um, Mm -hmm. And and maybe for some people it was, but the thinking of it as a psychotechnology that like it it was spontaneous uh, uh, to an extent, like it came on the church for a while. It, blessed a whole bunch of people and then it's it's basically disappeared um we don't see that anymore I'm, I'm actually involved in a pentecostal church now and the church is moving back in some ways towards a far more liturgical style of worship um and there's been big discussions in that we've been following much more uh, along with the church calendar we, we had like candles for lent the these things, when in the church that I was brought up in, which was a Pentecostal church, to say you would follow the church calendar, you would have been looked at like you were some kind of heretical. Um, go back to the Catholic Church, kind of insane person. But now we, we've kind of come full circle to an extent and have realised the power of liturgy and the power of um, the power of doing things communally. Um, in service. So is,
1: is that a denominational church that you're in now or just a non-denominational Pentecostal church?
0: Yeah, so it's in it, it we're involved with the Australian Christian churches, which is formerly the Assemblies of God. Um
1: Ah. So do you think the Assemblies of God internationally are moving back into this more um liturgical season?
0: I have no idea. Um so I can only speak for the church that I'm involved in because I'm not actually involved um, I'm not involved with any of the organizational side mm-hmm. of what is going on amongst the mm-hmm. other churches. I just know that our He's church is, is, yeah is is moving in that direction. Uh-huh. Um,
1: that's really super so- exciting because yeah. I've been working within our I, I go to a church that's loosely associated with one of the Presbyterian denominations. And uh I mean, if you walked into it from off the street, it, you would think it was a community Bible church of some sort. And uh, yeah. I've been trying to talk to the leadership about bringing in more um, times of liturgy, more Bible reading, um, more communal prayer, things like that, and not getting very far. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, it's encouraging to hear that it is happening some places.
0: Yeah, so uh, I don't know if that's like where the whole Australian Christian Churches is going or just mm-hmm. our church, but, but for me it's, an, it's, it's encouraging because it's a recognition that, you know, there was something that we, we did to an extent throw away the baby with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the, the thing that I had to juxtapose all of this history was I went to a Lutheran school. And so Lutherans, being the most conservative, um, like when like the most historically conservative of the Protestant churches out there, so it's the one that's closest to Catholicism in its theology and practice, um, or at least the Catholicism that it branched from. Anyway, it it was it was a real like juxtaposition, and and it actually really. Challenged me and, and helped me to synthesize everything that was going on because I like the Pentecostal church that I was in as a kid. It was like it's so out there, it was so it was almost the attitude was these old churches with their liturgy were not really Christian because all that they were doing was boring religion, that like they were religious churches. We were not a religious church. We we were the true church, and that's why we had been given the blessing. Um, that's why we were seeing the signs and wonders, and and had these mystical, mystical experiences and mystical things happen in the church. Um, but then I juxtaposed that to the Lutheran service, and and in primary school, the Lutheran church that I was in was actually a, a far more um, traditional appearing church it was uh it it was wooden pews and it like we actually left the school across the road to go into the church it was set up as a church it had the um the little sign on the wall with the numbers for the for the hymns um which which is something that I've only ever seen there because every other church I've been involved in was either being Baptist or Pentecostal um and you know the pastor would come out and he would be wearing his robes and have the um symbolic uh sash telling you what time of the church calendar it was and all of those all of those things that i I didn't even necessarily know what the meanings were but i saw this happen and he would give the benediction and everything would be a far far more traditionally oriented service and i could see at like at the time you know you're a kid you don't like sitting in the wooden pews it's boring and but I could see that Christ was there also, um, and it was, and so a lot of my upbringing, I was kind of working towards this synthesis and uh, of of these two juxtapositions within Protestant Christianity, um, but not from an intellectual point of view, from a um, from a o- almost from the, the other piece in Viveki's four piece of knowing the procedural and the participatory and um the perspectival um knowing and i i really almost became uh, a christian universalist for most of um my adult life but even in that perspective when i say christian universalist i mean um the church is the church if you go to an anglican or a catholic or orthodox or a pentecostal church that distinction is less important than if you are participating in a church and if you claim jesus to be your lord and savior that they they were the things that um, i viewed as being the most important aspects of um of starting your christian life um, and, and At the same time that i was doing this i had a bunch of other questions come up um so the big the big one was being smashed in high school uh with the the big ideas of the 19th century um yeah uh, physics uh, with um newton seeing that everything was uh mostly followed the newtonian laws and then later um being smashed with Uh, Einstein and how he changed everything and no actually we don't live in a clockwork universe everything is uh is experienced uh on a relative basis so even the time that we experience here on the earth is different from the time that's experienced in space so um all of those ideas coming through and at the same time the ideas of evolution coming through and what the implications of that were and that in particular has been really like th- those ideas have been really hard to synthesize for a lot of people um, and we get and that's where we get the uh, nietzschean idea of the death of god because now we have these things which provide greater explanatory power than the first few verses of genesis um, and I almost look back on that and, and laugh because I find that thinking of the scientific theories that provide the best current explanation for um, things that we observe, thinking of those things as being in the same class as poetry written to, um, to inspire people as to, like, this is the grand origins of humanity this is the the creation that that we experience thinking at thinking of that poetry and those scientific theories even anywhere near the same category i think is just now quite ridiculous one is obviously poetic the other one is a lens through which to view specific information to be able to manipulate the world and so i i i grew up and and it was actually reading cs lewis that finally kind of helped me synthesize those things to a small extent but there was still there was still a lot of challenges because i was growing up through the new atheist movement there were there was still a lot of challenges that were really strong challenges posed by that new atheist movement and there were challenges that I couldn't directly answer. I didn't have the language for, and that's where Peterson came in and was like, "He has a lot of the language that I was looking for, and he has the." Uh, he was able to express what it was that I had been trying to express, but couldn't, um, and I hadn't been fully able to articulate. Um, because obviously he he'd come at it from the other the other side. He had said, let, like he'd come at it from the evolution is true. So what is this thing here that everyone seems to be experiencing? Well, like, and he kind of realized that well these these were um, or the Bible was actually revealing a bunch of patterns which were memetic um, patterns that had embedded themselves into our own thoughts that they, they had become so culturally powerful over the, the years because they had worked they were true in an evolutionary sense they were true in a sense of this is the the direction that that we have to go in as a, a as a civilization to survive uh, and that's why they had that, that's why they had survived um, so that kind of closed off or, or at least began to answer um, some of those, some of those challenges that the new atheists have, had brought forward. And I think a lot of new atheists that had be- become new atheists, but were still kind of unsure were pulled back from that into a faith tradition by Peterson and all of his pre-2019 stuff that he did. Because so even though I never actually listened to anything that he said before 20, 2021, I think, maybe even 2022, it was those lectures that he gave, those debates that he had, which really, really pulled a lot of those former new atheists back to some form of, um, if not religion, at least acknowledgement that those religions provided us with something.
1: well so obviously it was really important for you to find a way to connect these two of your worlds um some people would not find that important at all they would just dive into one or the other so why was it so important for you
0: because i had very much that new atheist perspective on truth for so long so The new atheist perspective on truth is that it is a correct set of facts Um, and they look at everything through very much through the lens of if it can be explained by a common mechanic that we can identify and repeat then it can be true but if it but if it can't be explained in that way then it cannot be true and you see this you see this in everything in academia and and that's fine because this is what um academia studies academia studies the patterns that we can identify that we can then take and use to do things in the world
1: Um, i mean if that's their metric then it would seem that the replication crisis really throws a wrench into their Absolutely, right. Absolutely,
0: um, but see, I've always looked at these things more through the hard sciences lens, um, and this is this is why I guess I had always found it a, a great challenge because I had I I really enjoyed, and I never really understood why that I really enjoyed creative writing to like when I was going through high school, I loved it. It was. If English, if the subject of English was just creative writing, I think I would have, like, I would have put so much more effort into English, I would have enjoyed the subject a lot more than I did. Um, So I, I really did enjoy that creative expression. And I enjoyed um, programming for a similar reason. I enjoyed creating the things um, when I was like in software and and I kind of grew up in in the late, like I started getting into programming mostly in the late nineties when I was going through high school. And there was this real wave of optimism at the time that anything was possible. You could do anything and there was no real, like there were some ethical uh, issues with with software at the time. Like um, I would never, for example, have worked on pornographic websites, which were, they were coming up as being a big part of the internet at that time. But there was the concept of big data or um, tracking really wasn't in technology at that time. And so there was this great optimism that the technology would act as a liberating force for creative ideas, for Um, improving businesses for making everyone's lives better, for freeing people up from menial tasks, all of this kind of stuff, which is all true. It all kind of happened, but we now have this much, much darker side to technology that that has come up over the last 15 to 20 years where every bit of data is collected. Um, Big uh, organisations like Google and Facebook and Microsoft are all working on these AIs, which they're stealing everyone's data to create these AIs. They're parasitizing everyone's attention to work on these things. And so I think there's far more techno negativity in the world today than there was 20 years ago when it was a far more optimistic place, you know, before before Facebook, before when Myspace was the only social network and it was mostly a music website and so, so that, was the, that was the environment that I grew up in and so being on the tech like feeling myself more at home in the technical side as a teenager and as a young adult and becoming more involved with technical and scientific background people in my close friendship groups there was, there was an absolute need to reconcile what science says about stuff and what my, the biblical lens that I would look through would say about things. Um, and one of the attacks that the New Atheists made was the attack of, oh, you just believe in the God of the gaps. You Your God is something that we will eventually swallow up. It, it's your God is only an explanation for why things are because that is the scientific god right the mm-hmm. scientific god is about explaining the world it's 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 about explaining the mechanisms behind the world but it what they don't get what what nobody has seemed to put together is that in the early 20th century there was a mathematician, uh, a mathematician named Gödel. And he put he figured out um, using set theory that for every um, every rational system. So we would call the the way that scientists have to view the universe is as a rational system. It follows rules. It is logical. It is ordered. Um, that is how they have to view the universe. You can't view it in any other way to do science because. If you think that the rules of the universe are fluid, if, if you think that, the, that they, they are, or there are no real rules to the universe, if it's a place where anything goes, then you can run an experiment one day and get a set of results. You can run the exact same experiment the next day and get a very different set of results. And those differences cannot be explained through environmental changes or, or, or something along those lines, you have to view the world as or, or the universe as a rational machine to be a scientist. It, it is it is an axiom um, to do your work, which is effectively what why science came from Christianity because Christians believe that God created a rational universe.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but so so that is your that is your um, starting point what gödel proved is that in any rational system in any system based on the logic of mathematics that system has infinitely more true things or true facts than you can ever prove so science even if it can prove even if it can prove trillions of facts about the universe, Gödel proved that there's actually infinitely more. There's uh, there's quadrillions or quintillions more true things about the universe that you cannot prove. So the God of the gaps actually works against the sci- against scientists and. The new Atheists, nobody ever put two and two together to realize this: what that that girdle had actually undermined the basic assumption of science as a god. It it cannot be, and that realization really is something that I don't think that that the new atheist movement ever grappled with. Now, the well, new atheist,
1: yeah, I I don't think even the <laughs> even the completely materialist scientists have grappled with Gödel at all because Gödel also opens up this idea that whatever rational system that you have, it always requires something a level above to make the system itself coherent. There always has to be one more level above. I can't remember exactly how he put it, but I mean, the idea is that you don't have all of the... Um, no matter how complete you think the system is, it cannot be complete within its own set of rules. There has to be something above. Well, I mean, you keep going above, above, above. You know, <laughs> and it, that that happens to be what true all the place? way down. If you start down at the particle level, they're they're there because they're they're connecting together in some way that in, intimates that there is something above that level. And then, if you're looking at the cell level there is something above the cell level that's having some sort of impact on the cells. I mean, even just look at the way our, our brains and our will and our intention affect um, our health and affect the the way that um, the health of our organs and things like that, based on how we eat. And we're one level above those cells, but we're still affecting the cells. There's always something a level above and you you can't get rid of that, and Gödel proved that without question. Plus, I mean, I like the way you put it with the infinitely more, um, infinitely more facts than can ever be proved, because that just reminds me again of Verveki when he talks about the, what's his word for it, the uh, combinatorial explosion,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah.
1: And that that's just true of everything we look at. That that goes back to Jonathan Pajot's thing about how it's attention that makes the world. It's what you attend to, what you focus on that um, that makes the world.
0: <clears throat> yes, yes. And it really does. And that's where that's where we need more than we need science, we need art and culture and literature and all of those creative expressions because they offer they offer a vision, they, they offer a way forward, that they show us potential. Um, and I feel I, I feel like a lot of the really great literature that we saw over the last hundred years has all been don't do what you're about to do and we have been ignoring it. Um, and so I I personally think that of what I have read anyway, and and I I have not read anyone near as much as what I would like to have read, Um, but I live in our modern age and I get distracted very easily and I don't do all the things that I want to do, which is not a problem unique to me or um, our modern age, Uh, but... The books that I think are most explanatory for the dangers moving ahead, um, well, obviously 1984 and Brave New World, but I think also Dune is a book that was really, really powerful and it came out in the 60s with Frank Herbert. And there are there a few things that he brought up in that in that book or in those series of books which were um not prophetic in the sense that they actually predicted the future, but they were, they showed the danger of the path that we could go down. And so um, he was very much of the belief that humanity would come to a point where we had to confront artificial intelligence and we had to develop a religious instinct against um, creating artificial intelligence to think for us. Um, or we would wipe out, or, or it would wipe us out. And I think that that um, I think that some people have been talking about that through the singularity and and whatnot. But where I think Herbert is different from the people t- openly discussing the singularity and um, controlling AI and where we're going with that is that Herbert understood the power of religion and the power of culture and the need for taboo. And he introduced that concept as the, the through the um, idea of the Butlerian Jihad, which was where there was a massive war between the AI and humanity and humanity survived. but the cultural ramifications of that war was that the AI and And, in fact, all computing had effectively been demonised. And then in later books, he actually goes and talks about how that taboo had been broken and that that taboo being broken had almost ended humanity again and it was only through what the protagonists of the story had done that prevented it, um, which was... uh, he, the, the prote- So people read the first Dune book and think that that's all there is and it's the first Dune book is basically undermining the, um, the hero's journey by basically saying it followed this call as, and made him into a hero but at the end of the book it kind of gets to the point where you realise that actually he's no hero. He is about to lead the galaxy into its bloodiest civil war ever because he is fundamentally attached to religion to create this persona around himself. And that religious impulse had unleashed something very, very dark in a group that had been suppressed for quite some time. They went around the galaxy killing people. And he did that. He he unleashed that as a consequence of all of his his hero's journey, basically. So that was what the first book was about. But then it goes and it further deconstructs him as a hero. But the ultimate, like the climax of the series was actually in the fourth book, God, Emperor of Dune. And in that book, that's where Herbert really talks about power of religion, the power of pressure on populations. And I think he gets a lot wrong um, because where he goes with that, I don't actually agree with a lot of his conclusions. But as an artistic piece, to explain possible things that that humanity, or not not just possible, but almost certainly things that humanity will face in the coming centuries, I I think he he was uh, quite prescient um, in some ways. We would get to a point where technology became so controlling that. There would have to be some form of Luddite rebellion against it, or we would end up we would end up subservient to it. Um, and so I find that 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 literature um, to be really really powerful, really really expressive way of envisaging the future that people can grasp, people can understand. You read it, and you you understand like you understand that a lot more is being said than what is written in the pages, and it's presenting a vision of the future that we don't want to pursue that vision. And I feel like for the last 100 years, most of the great literature has been presenting a vision of the future that we don't want to go down, um, 1984 being, the, like, probably the novel of the 20th century um, because it showed up the great um the great ideology of the 20th century that that will bring down society if we go down that path it will enslave people if we go down that path and and he showed that per, like orwell showed that perfectly throughout throughout most of his works animal farm in 1984 being the the, the big ones and so i've well, kind what's, of
1: what's so interesting about what's so interesting about orwell's work is that both the people on the right and the left point to 1984 as the one thing that we mustn't let happen, because that's what the other, that's what would happen if we do what the other guys are saying. So, mm-hmm. so it, it works equally well for no matter what your political ideology is, any of them taken to the extreme will end up with 1984. And, Absolutely. Um, and I think reading that as an adult was such an eye opener for me because I don't think I ever really read it when I was in high school, when I was supposed to. I probably read Cliff Notes or something. But reading the actual book itself, like, I think it was maybe 10, 12 years ago that I read it. Right in the middle of, of the, the beginnings of this terrible polarization in the United States. I just realized, man, oh man, it just feels like we are all being played. Like there is some force that's trying to push us all into this thing so that we're going to end up there almost no matter what we do. <laughs> um,
0: that, that's and, sense I, and I think of,
1: the internet is is really magnifying that problem, pushing us. Yeah, that, our
0: that, that sense of inevitability, I, I have really, I really think that many people are feeling that. Like, so I, I've looked a little bit into um, what the podcast of the Lotus is. Um, says and they really have this um almost pained um, look at the politics of the uk which i've never really been involved with and they see it as well people voted for brexit because they wanted to do these things they wanted to fix the way that their society had been going but what they got instead was a bait and switch they yes they got brexit but all of the real problems in society that they they voted for Brexit so that they could fix, none of those problems have even been touched. And so so you I, I do feel like um, there is this sense that society, and it's not just from the right as well, it's from the left, because a lot of people who um, I've talked to on the left side have said, oh, the right just keeps winning. They like, but they, and they're speaking at it from an economic point of view. Um, they're they're going, okay. Inequality is worse than it's ever been, and it's it just seems to be getting worse. Um, all of the uh, corporate overlords are the ones um, who are ruling our destinies, and they have a vision very much of the future looking like Snow Crash, um, which I don't know if you've read that that novel as well. But
1: I uh, number in- one about the train.
0: No, no, no. Um, that one, I can't remember which one that one is, but um, Snow Crash was basically, they call it the first cyberpunk problem. And it, it presents a future that is very much corporations are in charge. They're almost like their are in many countries within like countries that aren't really countries anymore. The, 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 mm-hmm. the barriers between countries have, have broken down the spirit of the country is suppressed in the spirit of corporations rules. Um, And There
1: was a TV series on that. I want to say 10 years ago. Can't remember the name of the TV series, but it was very much that. So when, when you're standing at the window, looking out the window over the city, there's just these gigantic Google signs, you know, or Amazon signs and like, they're they're the rulers of of everything. There's no more government building. It's just uh, corporate overlords. The kids have been laughing about that forever. You know that that we're all going to belong to Amazon in our futures. We're all mm-hmm. going to be living in an Amazon house, buying Amazon goods, eating Amazon food.
0: Uh, look, and I these visions of the future are quite apocalyptic. Um, and the future is never quite as apocalyptic as you might think, hopefully, um, but, it, but it, it, the, the apocalyptic visions of the 60s and 70s haven't quite borne out just yet. We haven't faced the global starvation that um, people thought we would face. New technologies have come along that have allowed us to feed billions more people, um, so, but it is, it is very easy to see that the majority of our literature has not been painting a positive vision of the future for humanity. Some of it has. Um, and certainly through the 90s, I saw far more of a utopian um, vision of the future than what we got through the rest of the 20th century and what we're, we've gotten for the last number of years. So, Star Trek The Next Generation, um, Babylon 5. Um, these kind of science fiction shows that were really, really culturally resonant during the 90s, although that one was probably about five to ten years too early for what it was setting out to accomplish um, and the vision that it revealed. But these shows were actually fundamentally quite optimistic and it kind of feels like that as a millennial, like there was this very narrow period of, the optimistic future that I kind of grew up through and then it'll turn pessimistic again. Um, But this is like where I was going with all this and why I brought up June in particular is that I feel like with James Lindsay's current um, views on Gnosticism and views like he's he's gone back and reading all this literature from the far left that um, like he's been reading Hegel and Marx and um, and he's come to the conclusion that these people are Gnostic wizards. And um, what I find interesting about that is that his conclusion is that we had faith and we had reason. So and he would symbolise that as faith being Jerusalem, reason being Athens. Um, and that our culture was built on these things. But then you had Alexandria, which is where um, the Hermetic tradition comes from. And they have been the things that we have to keep at bay. That mystical side of things has to keep at bay. Wh- where I was going with that is that, that vision is presented very strongly in Dune. Um, that, that, that presents the same vision, like we need to keep the mystical out of the political and i actually agree with that but i but the the point where his new atheism is showing through and where i think he gets it wrong is when he looks at the mystical and says this shouldn't be a part of the political i agree with him but the mystical is an important part of human experience it is it Human experience without the mystical is a lesser experience, and we see this because people take hallucinogens, people um, try and get to these mystical experiences. We almost see it seems like a lot of what we have, or a lot of what we structure our lives around, is to get to a mystical experience of some kind, um, and where, where I so where I think. James gets it wrong. Is not that we should avoid the mystical altogether, but that the mystical needs to be aligned correctly. It, we like the mystical needs to be aligned towards love, towards Christ, um, and that's and that's where if, if it's aligned correctly, that's where the mystical is useful. Um, and this is that this all ties into the work that John. John Bavakey is doing um, because he's like it's you can't get propositional from mystical is what John has said um, effectively. He, he's, and he's, he's trying to create his religion that's not a religion. He's trying to create a religion that, is, that has no propositional side to it at all. And I don't think that John's going to be successful in that either for much the same reason. You need some level of propositional to properly frame the mystical. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, you, you've you said a lot, and it's all very, very interesting. Um, so with regard to experience, it is true, I think, that we all long for the mystical experience. We all long for that Um that experience of being closer to the ineffable, to being closer to the divine. Um, But I also think that that that, uh, desire for experience can lead us in very wrong directions. And um, even if your desire for experience is pointed towards the one god and is pointed towards christ still if if the experience is what's important to you then you are you're putting yourself in the same situation as a person for whom the gift is more important than the giver
0: Hmm.
1: and um i mean i used to have these sayings that i would say to myself it's the giver not the gift it's the promiser not the promise I want to keep my focus on him, recognizing that he is the, the one who he promises us things. He gives us hope. He gives us gifts. But it is him that I love, not the gifts that he gives. It is him that I love, not the promises that he fulfills. Because there comes a time in every life when, like when you're raising a child, when a mother is raising a child she needs to learn that there's a time when she needs to back off and let the child make mistakes and fall and maybe even hurt Mm -hmm. themselves because otherwise they will never learn to walk. And, um, as the child gets older, the mother needs to back off and let the child make decisions and make mistakes. And, and there are even times when the child says, I don't want anything to do with you. I hate you get away from me. And the mother needs to learn that that's okay. And she needs to back off and let that child have that space. And God as the perfect father is even more so that there come times in our lives when he, in a sense, removes himself a little bit from us so that we have to grow and, and get our sea legs beneath us and, and, uh, and develop a faith that's strong enough to get us through the tough times. And that sometimes means that we can't see where he is and we can't feel close mm. to him, but whether we feel it or not, it's true. It's real. Mm. And this is why I think hinging your faith on the experience gets you in a lot of trouble because then when the experience is missing, it must not have been real.
0: Yep. And, and, and I absolutely 100% agree with everything that you're saying. And what, where i w- where i mean that it needs to be in alignment it, it also needs to be in its proper place so you you're a painter and have you do you often um slip into a flow state while you're while you're painting
1: well you know since i started doing this channel i haven't done much painting i think i only have a, so much bandwidth for creativity and i use it all here and uh but yes when i was painting there would be times when I would be painting for maybe three hours and I would think only 15 minutes had gone by. Mm. I wasn't conscious of time.
0: Yep. Yeah. And that, 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 that flow state is, that is a mystical experience mm. and it is a mystical experience that is pointed towards the right thing. That, that, that is, that is the correct mystical experience as far as I'm concerned. The, well, that, that is the properly aligned mystical experience and so this is where people fall into traps because they will go out and take hallucinogenics to have a mystical experience rather than going and doing something to express their gratitude towards God and then falling into that flow state or that myst- or that other mystical experience or um, going to church and being a part of that congregation and and really experiencing god that way and that that is the cor- the correct mystical experience is one that is experienced in in pursuit of god in pursuit of goodness the good the true and the beautiful um and yeah, it's, it's I, I
1: think there's something there to do with preparation too as you were talking just now i was reminded that those times of flow came after I had spent many, many long hours learning and preparing and having lots and Mm -hmm. lots of brush mileage and experience so that when I got into that flow state, all of these things that I had learned were now coming to the fore and were participating in this experience. And, um, and so the, the, act of creativity that's happening there in that space is all reliant on the the learning and experience that came before and the perspectives that come out of that. And in a similar way, I have had revelatory experiences in worship, but I don't recall ever having any of those before I had a solid grasp of who God is and his greatness and his glory and the way that he reveals himself through his word. And um, so that as I was worshiping, I was actually beginning the worship with a contemplation of all of the aspects of God. And then that brings me up into this, this moment of, of revelatory worship. And I think it's probably the same for, I have a friend who's a concert pianist and when she She recently played a symphony that required it's like two, two hours or something worth of music that she had to commit to memory. And she only had about a month to commit the whole thing to memory and an incredibly complex piece of music. So she was practicing eight, 10 hours a day for a month. But when she sat down to play that symphony, she was able to be transported into the symphony as she played because of all the preparation that had come before. So I think there's something there too. What did somebody say about the psychedelic experience? It's like uh, it's like want, wanting the experience without the, I, I can't remember the phrase they use, but it's like a cheap trick sort of. Let me go mm-hmm. get this experience without having put in any of the work.
0: hmm Mm -hmm. and and i think there was a reason that ayahuasca ceremonies were actually ceremonies they they prepared themselves for the experience um, through a lot of discipline and ritual and whatnot before they went into that whereas in our western way of like consumerist culture Mm -hmm. they're just like give me that experience (laughs) yeah and and that's where so so much of what we get wrong in the Western world, I feel, is we get the right things in the wrong order, or we try and get the right things in the wrong order. So, and, and this explains our attitudes towards sexuality. This explains our attitudes towards food and um, eating. Like yeah. we want that that hit of sugar, but. In the right context, it's just you have a little bit of sugar, but most of what you eat is, is proteins and fats and fibres and, and all, of the, all of the nutrients as well. The good things should be eaten before you have that, that little bit of sweet. But what we do is we go, no, let's put all the sweet in our cans of soft drink. Let's put all the sugar in, the, in, in our breads and in, in our basic foods. Let's, let's load up on those empty carbohydrates in, in everything that we eat. And it affects us physically because we're doing things not in the proper order. And it's the same thing when people sleep around before marriage, and then they get to marriage and they've already developed a habit of sleeping around. And so one, their like their sexual experience in marriage doesn't feel as special. So they're they're actually missing out because of what because they have gone. And chaste um, sexual experiences before the commitment that frames the proper sexual experience, mm-hmm. and and two, they've trained themselves to go and basically pursue other people, and that's why the number one, um, the, the the number one uh, correlation uh, for figuring out whether someone will get divorced or not. Is how many sexual partners they've had before marriage. The more sexual partners they've had, the more likely they are to get a divorce after uh, after they get married. Um, and and so it's putting things in the wrong place. Even if those things are good in and of themselves, if you put them in the wrong place, they turn that they, they they become not good. And, and I see a lot of what we do in Western culture is is doing things good or, or pursuing good things but pursuing in, in the wrong order or placing them in the wrong, wrong priority
1: level in our lives. well is it only westerners because it seems to me that that goes right back to the garden i mean isn't that mm. what eve did I, I mean at least i've heard that some theologians say that that in good time that god would have allowed them to eat from the the tree mm-hmm. of the knowledge of good and evil but not then because they weren't ready for it so they they did a good thing but in the wrong order Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: they wanted to have the you know the hit the pride the knowledge whatever um Mm. so is it only westerners that have screwed things up or
0: (laughs) (laughs) well no no that you're absolutely spot on there and (laughs) and that's actually really good taking it right back to the to the garden because that is that's always the temptation, right? And this is what the other criticism I have of James Lindsay is that he's identifying it as Gnosticism, but as Christians, we identify it as pride, the mm-hmm. belief that we can be God, that we doing doing the wrong thing or the right thing in the wrong way can actually make us superior and
1: well, and we have a secret knowledge that nobody else has, yeah. You know, right? Yeah.
0: yeah, but don't we all believe that when when we are in our most prideful moments, that is what we believe? We believe that we have the secret knowledge that allows us that, that makes us superior. And
1: yeah, well, I mean, I can remember just recognize. Maybe it was only fifteen years ago that I recognized that that there is a thing in me that actually somehow feels like the rules don't apply to me. There's certain things that I had been doing because I never really was good at learning. Well, nobody ever taught me delayed gratification when I was a kid. So I never really learned it. And, you know, over many years of of trying to learn self-discipline or or learning to be on a this kind of diet or that kind of diet or whatever, I did learn some aspects of delayed gratification. But But there was always this part of me like, well, this little thing won't hurt, you know, just a little bite of this or that that won't hurt because somewhere underneath that was. Yeah, I can do that and it's not going to have an effect on me, you know, maybe it affects other people, but it's not going to affect me and I could completely blindside myself away from the consequences that don't show up for two weeks or four weeks after certain behaviors, you know, Um, and and so. I, I think I think that that's something that everybody has in them. Maybe I'm the only one, I
0: don't know. No, no, <laughs> no you, you're absolutely spot on. So um, I, I remember when I was a teenager and I was going through the Bible, like, and I came to the, the, um, the Lord's Prayer and I was reading through the Lord's Prayer and line by line, I'm like, there's a, like, how did a human come up with this? This is. This is the perfect prayer in the perfect order that places all of the priorities correctly. And even to the point where the, the Lord's Prayer says, that, that there's that line, um, lead me not into temptation. It's not give me the strength to resist temptation. It's like lead me not into temptation. Um, and I, I, have, I have a friend who, who does not profess to be a Christian, And he was saying that, like the other day, I've just I've removed YouTube from my phone. YouTube now that they put in Shorts, they they're just too addictive. So I, I just got rid of the whole app from my phone. I won't be installing it again until they get rid of that because it just sucks up too much of my time. And when he said that, I just had this thought back to the Lord's Prayer, and was like, and I said to him, look. You're a better Christian than I am in in many ways. You're fleeing from temptation, man. You're like that is that is exactly what a Christian is called to do when they identify something in their life that is getting between them and and like God or the things that 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 they're pursuing for the good, then you have to get rid of it or you have to like reframe it in a way that you can experience it. Um, in the right place in your life. And it was like the first time I kind of started to get a hint that, that this was something that was important was when I was a teenager and I'd spend like, or a young adult really, when I'd spend like the whole day playing video games. And the whole time you're kind of enjoying yourself, but then you get to the end of it and you feel like, wow, that's an entire day gone where I haven't actually accomplished anything. All I have been doing is, is this one thing and it hasn't been productive in my life. And now I, I still love video games, but only in the right circumstances. I have to frame the time that I'm spending doing that correctly so that I can enjoy it properly because I do enjoy them. I enjoy them more now. When I'm doing them in a time where I have done all of the other things that I need to do to maintain my life, and put, putting everything in the right place is is key. Mm-hmm. There, it's like that's the dessert of my life, not the main course.
1: That um, reminds me when my when my daughter was little, I, I either heard a message or I read a book or something that said. <clears throat> Try to use the word no as little as possible when you are um, talking to your children. Use the word yes advisedly. Like, mommy, can we go to the park? Yes, we can go to the park after you have finished this or that, you know, or um, mommy, can I have a cookie? Yes, you can have a cookie. But first, we have to finish cleaning your room. And then after you've had dinner, then you can have a cookie. And so you never really say no, but the yes always has a caveat to it. And mm. Uh, mm. I don't know how effective it is, but it it's effective in the sense that you get a lot less uh, resistance and crying and uh, fussing from the child because that now they have the promise. This thing is coming, this thing that they want, and you didn't say no, because if you say no, then immediately this... This resistance comes up, you know, like in, is it in uh, Colossians? Um, Do not eat, do not taste, do not touch. These things have no power over the flesh. All the do nots just build up this desire to fight back. You know mm-hmm. this this need to grasp when you get the do not, but but if you get the yes, you know. Um, elsewhere in the scripture it says, "All things are possible, but not mm. all things are beneficial." <laughs> right? Yes, right. So
0: yes, and and that's like absolutely right. Like everything, you can do anything in life, but you can't do everything in life. And the things that you do do need to be framed correctly. Um, I can't go to my neighbor's house and use my nail gun on their walls unless I have their permission to do so. Because if I go to my neighbor's place and get bring my nail gun and just nail nail into their walls, they're gonna look at me and go, What are you doing? That's terrible. But if they have like a piece of cladding that needs to be clad to the walls and I use my nail gun and but they're gonna be grateful and, and so everything everything does need to be framed correctly. Um, and that's what that's what really the lesson of movies tells us, right? Who are the great directors? The great directors are the ones who frame every shot perfectly um, and they, they put everything into the correct context, the correct order. Um, and the name of the guy is escaping me, but the best modern director, he started out his career with Memento, the, the film. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but it is centred around this, this man who he's got a problem that uh, when his wife was killed and from that point onwards, he's got a mental disorder that means that he forgets anything more than a couple of minutes ago. Um, and so to simulate that, the whole film progresses backwards through time. So you start with the conclusion of the film and the audience gets to experience the conclusion and then they get to experience the things that led up to the conclusion of the film. And the film itself is really good because it's giving you the experience that this person lived through and the revelations that come as you look back through this person's past you can see how he got to where he ended up but you also see how he has actually lied to himself at key points intentionally so that he will go down the path that that he goes down and the whole the whole framing of everything is just so well done and really wish I could remember that guy's name but He's, he's done, he did the Batman movies as well, the, the good ones, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. Um, Christopher right, Nolan. Christopher
1: Nolan, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's what I was going to yeah. say. And isn't he also the same one that isn't, what was the name of that movie that came out during COVID? We had to go to a drive-in theater to see it. About half, half of the movie is taking place backwards in time and the other half is taking, it, they're happening simultaneously that some of the characters are moving forward in time and some of the characters are moving backward oh, in time it's a one word yes. it's a one word title and it's the same guy that that directed inception
0: yes um
1: did christopher nolan direct inception
0: i can't yeah i think that was a nolan film
1: um, well, somebody will tell us in the comments.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm certain. I'm certain. <laughs> the the one thing about doing a stream like this is you're not whipping stuff out on IMDb to check. Yeah, <laughs> to yeah. Check
1: yeah. Well, and um, how important is it really? I mean, in the scheme of things, that's not what what we're trying to get at. But um,
0: yeah, and and, so and that yeah.
1: the last thing that you you were talking about was James Lindsay and um, his perspective on Gnosticism.
0: Hmm. In, um... I think I've already kind of covered uh, a bit about what I wanted to say about that. Um, okay. Uh, but as a part of like as a part of me listening to some of what James Lindsay was saying, it's interesting because I, I have been watching another YouTube channel, which I would thoroughly recommend if you're interested in these kind of things, mm-hmm. called Esoterica, and it is an exploration of all of the things that James Lindsay has said from an academic point of view, but from the point of view of like let's explore all of these uh, like Middle Ages and early modern, um, well, effectively Gnostic, but uh, occult texts and what do they say, what are their their, um, ramifications? And I've recently been thoroughly enjoying that channel that's he frame he the way he frames it is he approaches all of these texts from an academic point of view who wrote them when were they written um, what do they say um, and so as an example the probably the most important occultic text is called the lesser key of Solomon um, and it focuses it, it actually, talks about concepts which Christians are going to find completely heretical, um, but, it, but it's talking about binding demons and angels to your service and it, it actually comes from the angle that when Solomon built the temple, he actually bound demons in the walls of the temple as he was building it and that, that was how he was able to actually create it, which is thoroughly, thoroughly heretical but it's interesting watching like all of the all of these videos on, on these different occultic and um, mystical texts, all of the heresies. They kind of all align, and and James is kind of right in what he is saying in that there is a common thread that runs through all of these things, and it, it ends up at the door of the United Nations today. Um, so so he, his his analysis is actually quite quite interesting and quite correct but i do think that he is wrong in that we should just get rid of the mystical altogether i think the place for the mystical is in in the pursuit of god not in the pursuit of politics um because ultimately what we what we are pursuing that that top of the tree is our god and if our god is politics or is ourselves ultimately because that's that's really what Gnosticism is. It's putting man in the place of God, which is what pride is. It's like there are all of these concepts that are the same thing expressed differently. Pride yeah. it's putting man as his own God. Gnosticism, it's saying that, well, ultimately, man is his own God, and he just needs to be freed from the constraints of the physical. So, But it's the same thing, right? Like you're putting man as god um and then you know that's what communism said like communism said that man will be his own god and and man will create man um and so you you have all of these texts that are effectively they're not a new idea and they go right back to the to the garden and mm-hmm. the serpent that that initial heresy has followed this strand of thinking from a let's rule the like let's rule society point of view for the, for the last 6, 10,000, however many thousands of years, that thinking has ruled that, but it, at an individual level as well, it can rule us. And the way that I always look at or, or try and explain why it's so bad is if you put man at the top of your hierarchy, if everybody puts man at the top of their hierarchy, then inevitably – Foucault becomes correct and everything becomes about power because if you put man in your, as your God, the question then becomes, which man? And that's when you must play power games to climb Mm -hmm. the greasy pole as far as you can get so that you possess the power so that you're ruling yourself. So that, and that's the ultimate goal of pride. Whereas Agape the love of others, the unconditional pouring out of yourself for the sake of others. If that rules the day, then power matters very little because everybody is pouring themselves out for the sake of others. Mm -hmm. And, And that's where when people in society are aligned towards Christ, that's when you get great societies. That's when you get societies that are building and do great things and, you end up with beautiful cathedrals across Europe. Um, you end up with um, 70 years of, of peace um, in uh, across the Western world. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that we really do need to focus on talking more about putting agape, putting Christ, putting God at the centre of our attention. Um, also ultimately- well,
1: I I think one of the things that bothers me most about James Lindsay's work, I mean I I fully respect all of the scholarship and all of the effort he's put into it, but in this base this is probably going to sound horribly arrogant, but back in the seventies I I stumbled across what you would call a conspiracy and. Uh, mm-hmm. I started researching it and I filled up an entire room of my house with research. It was absolutely stainless, man. I mean, it was perfect. It all fit together and, um, but then I found Christ and, and then it was completely unimportant anymore because God is so much bigger than any human conspiracy even if it's Mm -hmm. a true conspiracy, God is still bigger. So, um, focusing on God and on love and on, um, being, um, placing myself in his care was so much more important to me than knowing all of these Mm -hmm. details about all of these terrible things that are happening. And Bless his heart, as they would say in the South, he's he's got himself all worked up about this stuff and he's out there getting everybody else all worked up about it. Thinking that they all need to know the details of every one of these books and every one of these thinkers, when really it's very simple, there are very simple principles at work here, and if you know those very simple principles, as you were saying That when you try to put man in the center, when you try to make man the center or the state the center, either way, you end up with having, you necessitate coercion automatically. You have Mm -hmm. to use coercion to get what you want. And when you put God in the center and when people are focused on God, then coercion is unnecessary because people Mm -hmm. are operating under the rubric of love and not under the rubric of power. So let's teach people the simple principles of how you get away from coercion and power so that they can immediately recognize when they're hearing something that's in the wrong frame. Let's Mm. teach them the right frame so that the wrong frame is so obvious to them when they hear it. Mm. You know, it took me a long time to come to that. But but most of the time I can recognize the wrong frame immediately. But, but that's just because I've been living with these ideas for how many years now, 1978 until now, that's uh, 45 years or something like that. And, you know, everybody's all worked up now about what's happening in education. Come on, this stuff was happening back in the late 70s. It was happening in the early mm-hmm. 80s. It, it was the same problem but they just gave it different terminology they just gave it a different framing what Mm -hmm. what is now crt back then was uh values clarification and situational ethics and and they find these ways to frame things so that people get fooled into thinking this is the new thing and uh we're gonna put that into the schools and we're gonna propagandize the children and by the way I listened to one of the greatest videos today that I've heard in years is Jordan Peterson interviewing this guy. I think his name is Sandifer who has started a new series, uh, a new system of schooling. Unbelievable. I mean, it was so exciting. His concepts of education and uh, what can come out of it. It was unbelievable. Mm. And you know, Every bit of the video was great. I, I get to minute 30 and I'm thinking, "Wow, well, I got to send this to somebody and I'll tell them just watch the first 30 minutes. But then I watch the next 30 minutes like, wow, this 30 minutes is great, too. And All the way to the end. It's just great, great, great. So I highly recommend. And, mm-hmm. and I think the title of it is Acton. He, he's he developed something called the Acton School of Business. And then he started developing the Acton Academies, which is K through 12 education. Mm-hmm. But the video with Jordan Peterson is really, really great.
0: It's it's really hard to know what to do with um, children and education, um, like for as on an individual level. So, um, I've got my kids in a state school, which is like the state schooling system has been corrupted to an extent in this country. Um, so the the things that my country is talking about the things that that it finds important is that Australia is a country of Gaia worshippers. We 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 worship the environment basically, and that's reflected in our schools from a push for environmentalism through all of the different subjects. And I actually have um, I've taken photos of a couple of pages from core texts in the teacher's training syllabus, which basically says we aren't going to teach environmentalism or environmental science in schools. What we have to do is we actually have to, like we can't just teach them about it. We have to push it as a core value in the schools. Um, And it's, it's, it's really hard to know, like is that something worth pulling my child out of school for? because what they're doing is that they're actually glorifying the protection of the environment above everything else. And they are are instilling that as a core value in my child, or they're trying to. Do I pull my children out of the schools and teach them mathematics without this sustainability lens on the top of it? Um, Or do I allow them to go through that system so that they're exposed to it and are better equipped to deal with the future that, is being created by the academics who've trained the teachers for the last fifteen years, um, which is the world that they will end up in anyway. So, and, it, it's, and can you it's at the same hard
1: time hard teach them? The can you in the evenings teach them through a different mm-hmm. lens too? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, because uh, here's here's kind of what happens. When I was in the legislature back in the late seventies, in, in the early eighties in Iowa, I was uh, chairing a subcommittee. On educational regulations. And one of the regulations that really troubled me a lot was something called the um, that every teacher, in order to continue their certification for teaching, had to annually take a class in multicultural non-sexist education. Which sounds benign enough considering mm-hmm. what they're now having to learn in order to be certified. But Multicultural non-sexist education contained a whole lot of things under that rubric. And uh, the, uh, in, in order to explore what that actually meant, I invited in the head of the Department of Education. And he came in and he was explaining to me that value clar- values clarification, which is a, a system of clarifying the children's values was the core value of the curriculum. That meant that it's taught in, it's not taught in the mathematics classroom, but mathematics is taught through the lens of values clarification. Mm-hmm. Physics is taught through the lens of values clarification. Well, so I say, can you give me an example of this? And he said, well, yes, let's take, for example, when an unstoppable force hits an immovable object like a, a truck barreling down the freeway at 80 miles an hour hits a brick wall. We would explore how did the wall feel when it was hit by the truck? <laughs> right? Yep. So are you learning physics in that environment? Or are you learning a bunch of wishy-washy nothing that's not going to give you any sort of a valuable education for your future?
0: Well, that's the definition of pathological Putting pathos (laughs) before the logos, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like that—that is—that is is literally the definition of that word, like right there. (laughs) So I think, like as a parent, my goal is to you know instill Christian values or like values that I feel are important to them surviving future into them, but also allowing them that exposure to. The rest of their society and they will ultimately over the course of their life develop their own views and synthesize all the different views that they've they've heard and seen over their life and you know the hope as a parent is that your views are going to shine through because um I I read a book um by a, a psychologist named Kiersey and he said that um our children are our little pygmalion projects. They're they're people that we want to shape into our own image. And that's that's certainly true. But at the same time, we all have to realize that we can't, they're, they're not clones of us, and they're not they're not blank slates, and they still have to exist within a culture. And the question is, how much of that culture do we want to expose them to at each stage of their life? Do we want to go the full Benedict option, um, pull them out of culture for as long as possible to ground them in the truth for as long as possible, or do we want to be guiding them through this mind field and teaching them the truth along the way? And it like the answer is going to be different based on the children involved, the parents involved. how they respond to all these different ideas, and and it's hard. And you know that they're going to be corrupted by the sin of the world. I've been corrupted by the sin of the world. Um, sometimes we know exactly how that corruption happens and we can identify it and, and remove it, and sometimes we don't. And so, yeah, being a parent is very, very hard. It is hard because it is a problem that has this combinatorial explosion point of view. We can't see the future. We can barely see one step ahead. So we're moving into the fog and the only light that we have is our own values, our own beliefs. And and so we just have to look and walk into the fog using those and doing the best we can based on our own circumstances. Now, state school that my kids are at is actually um, there's a whole bunch of military kids around the area and they kind of go to the same state school. So it's actually a very interesting mix of people at the state school because there's a lot of kids who have parents that go away for months at a time on military duty and um, thankfully Australia's not involved in any wars at the moment but there was a time when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan where Kids at school lost parents, um, and so they had to deal with that. So it's a it's a much more grounded school than some of the other schools in the area, and I I kind of I like that. um, I like that there's the the discipline from being in a military family does shine through in some of the kids. It also causes other problems, but it's something that is going to be unique to their experience. That. I never had growing up because mm-hmm. I grew up in a different context, a different environment. Yeah. Um, so
1: Yeah. And I, I think um I think the most important thing is to somehow keep a pipeline of communication open with your kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because what I found was that the pipeline of communication closed down far sooner than I thought it was going to. So i had all these wonderful things i wanted to to impart and to share and so forth and by the time i thought it was time to impart those things nobody was listening anymore (laughs) because i was not i was no longer the authority or the one who was the trusted advisor you know i mean it just comes a time when kids determine that they're going to either look to the peer group or they're going to look to other trusted advisors rather than their parents so so you just try to keep that pipeline open as long as you can you know
0: my 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 eldest is eight years old and my the moment that um makes my day more than anything else at the moment is just a very simple moment it's when all the kids are in their beds. They're preparing to go to sleep, and it's like I say, "Good night, sweetie. I love you." And she just says, "I love you too, daddy." Back to me, and just that 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 one moment is it is just it is always the highlight of my day when she does that. Um, because It we do clash um, on a number of things, and I try. Like I'm trying to instill values into her and sometimes um, she doesn't want those values instilled into her. Sometimes she gets herself into such a mood that she's not able to listen to anything. And so there's all where we will not, we do not have a relationship that is perfectly harmonious all the time. Mm-hmm. So those little moments of genuine love that's reciprocated is is all that much sweeter because of that. But we kind of need to have these conflicts with our kids because if we don't have these conflicts with our kids, then that probably means we're not paying that much attention to them Um, and we're not guiding them down the path that they need to be guided down.
1: When you said that, it reminded me of that. There's this Latin phrase that I heard in a movie a few months ago I can't remember the Latin phrase right now, but the English translation is sweeter after difficulty. Mm, So like when you're climbing up a mountain and it's a hard mountain to climb, but you get up and then there's that view, right? That view is so much more beautiful than it would have been if you had just opened a window and saw that view, but it's so much more beautiful because you had to climb up there to get to that point, you know, or when you have Mm. a tough day with your kids, but at the end of the day, they still say, daddy, I love you. The daddy I love you is way sweeter just because of all the difficulty you've had during the day. So,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that if, if there's one thing we could teach our children, it would be sweeter after difficulty, that there's mm-hmm. a purpose for the difficult things that we go through because it does make life sweeter. That piece of candy is way sweeter if you haven't had 10 pieces already. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that we do that's worthwhile that requires difficulty is way better because of the difficulty not in spite of the difficulty Mm. but that but that's a tough one for people to learn because that means that somehow suffering is built into the universe but there's a purpose in it and uh The,
0: the best the best ginger beer i ever tasted was the ginger beer that i drank and it was not even cold by that by that time but i drank it after hiking to the top of a mountain with with some friends and it was this it was it was just the most wonderfully tasting ginger beer that i've ever had (laughs) now chemically it was identical to all the other ginger beers that i ever drink but it was that whole effort of getting to the top of the mountain and having that as a part of the reward for that effort that just made it that much nicer and that, that much more enjoyable. So you you're absolutely right. Um when we have to strive for something, it makes it, it it makes it all that much more meaningful, which is why all of the things that we do in society that make make things easier for us to experience actually remove a lot of the meaning from our from our lives. That's why. That's mm-hmm. why pornography is to be avoided because it is so easy to attain that it, it is effectively worthless. And it, and that is why you can't, you don't live by eating nothing but lollies because all you're doing is you're pumping yourself full of the sugar, giving that, that immediate dopamine hit, but you're not actually nourishing your body. Whereas the, those, yeah, as you say, the lollies taste much nicer. If mm-hmm. you've eaten your vegetables first,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Stephen. I I hope we can get together again sometime in the future. Yeah. Uh, you had lots of great comments on your last episode, so I hope you get a chance to look at those. And uh...
0: I, I I did, and it, it was um, it was good. I, I really um, I, I actually enjoyed going back over and watching it again because. There were there were many times when you're talking and, and you bring out an idea, and I'm like, I really wanted to comment on that one, but you were so much in the flow that by the time you got to the end of your thought process, there was something else to comment on, and and it, it made me think about it made me think about that. So, and then yes, yeah, so the other people who commented on it, um, there there were some very interesting comments, and obviously well, that's
1: that's why these videos are, these conversations are so we think we're going to head down one direction, but then we end up going in an entirely different direction just because something comes up that's so worthwhile Mm. that we want to pursue it. Like today we were going to talk about evolution. We never got there, but I do have Mm. some good stuff prepared on that. So maybe one time in the future we can talk about that.
0: Yes. Yes. And it was something in one of your previous conversations that kind of brought that up um, that, that, that I was like, Oh, I wanted to comment on that, but I can't remember exactly what it was now. But
1: yeah, oh, let's come let's back
0: to <laughs> yeah, let, let's come back to. I, I kind of I kind of got almost to where I, I was going with that anyway, because um, that was the reconciliation of science and mm-hmm. and faith that that took me quite some time um, to to figure out, and I, I still don't have it perfect, but it was it's been. It's been a part of that, you know, we who wrestle with God aspect. Well, what what do we give over to God? What do we what what are the what are the axiomatic assumptions that we stick with, and what is the dead wood that we burn off, or the things that we have to reinterpret in a new light? Um, and we can go go over much more of that. Um, well, what I'm going
1: to do is I'm going to put a video in the in the description section. Um, where michael levin is talking to ian McGilchrist, the guy Mm -hmm. with two brain hemispheres and Mm -hmm. uh, another thinker by the name of richard watson it is a fascinating conversation and all three of them acknowledge that there's something missing in the evolutionary paradigm Mm -hmm. but then levin brings up his idea of what's missing which is from a pretty much strictly materialist perspective, but from a very different perspective than most evolutionists. And then McGilchrist comes in and points out, yeah, but there's still something missing there. (laughs) You're missing (laughs) something very important. And they're trying to navigate this space because very difficult space, especially for scientists who are in the public sphere and who have to be concerned about their tenure and everything else to wrestle with these difficult questions. So it's a terrific video and it's not very long. It's only about 50 minutes long. So I'm gonna put it in the description section for anybody who stuck with us to this point, you can listen to that video <laughs> and maybe we'll find something to talk about in there in the future.
0: Mm.
1: So you're gonna have a very happy evening hearing your little ones say, I love you, daddy. And, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Look forward to the rest of your day, and it was great spending time with you, Stephen. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, it's 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 been wonderful chatting. Um, I got a lot of insight that what you said earlier about um, parenting the yes rather than the no, but putting conditions on the yes. That is something that I, I will definitely work on integrating more into my own parenting style, because um, I do tend to be a bit of a no person.
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> I either. wish I wish but, I had um, remembered it. I wish I had remembered it more consistently as they grew older, because mm-hmm. certain things that you learn when the kids are little and then when things start getting more contentious as they get older, it's kind of hard to hold on to those little mm-hmm. jewels, you know? So um, yeah, I highly recommend it. So,
0: all right. Well, a- it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Bye bye everybody.